Good morning, Grace. It's an honor to be up here this morning. I just want to say thank you to Darren for giving me the opportunity to uh, to speak this morning. And um, my name's Mikey Brannon. For those of you who may not know me, we've been at Grace for about a year now. Uh, my wife's Brooke, and um, we've got five little ones that that run around here. So it's uh, it's good it's good to be here, and I appreciate everyone for. Uh, for, for just being with us this morning, this time of worship. Um, if you have your Bible, I'd ask you to go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter chapter 16. As you know, Grace, we're just working our way through the book of Matthew, and, and, and this passage is, is, is the next on the list, and it's Matthew 16, and we're going to be uh, looking at verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> Let me go ahead and have a word of prayer before we get started. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just thank you for uh, for your grace for your mercy. God, thank you for each and every individual that you've brought here this morning. We just pray that your Holy Spirit would fill this place, God, that you would, uh, God, as we just look at your word, as we as we hear what, what you've told us, God, that you would just give us ears to hear, uh, God, that you would just ignite our hearts with passion, uh, just a desire to know you more and to follow you in obedience. And ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> uh, the title of the, the sermon this morning is Bad Bread. And specifically, what I want to talk about this morning is a, is a, a warning that we get uh, from, from Matthew. He records for us a warning about the dangers of bad bread. And it's not typically where we hear a warning coming from in regards to, to bread. And I was thinking back in my life to times when, when I've had warnings, and I was thinking uh, back to when Brooke and I were first married, you know, 20 some odd years ago. Uh, we were young. We didn't have any kids at the time. We were both uh, working. We were both in college. And uh, when Saturday rolled around, Saturday was like our day to really sleep. And, and, and one thing I remember about not having kids was we got a lot more sleep than we do now. Something happens when you have kids, and those days are gone. Um, but on that particular Saturday, Saturday rolls around and we're going to sleep in. But on that Saturday, we lived in Northwest Alabama in an area that's really known for tornadoes. And, and so there was a severe weather outbreak and tornadoes just ripping through the town where we lived. And, and, and in that town, they had a water tower and on top of the water tower was a siren. And so when there was a tornado warning that that siren would sound and you could hear it for miles away and everybody knew that it was time to take cover and, and Brooke and I lived in a, in a manufactured home. And, and one thing you know is if you live in a manufactured home, they don't mix well with tornadoes. They tell you if you live in a manufactured home, a tornado's coming, get out, seek cover. And we had neighbors across the street, this elderly couple who had a storm cellar that was you know, dug down into the ground. And so when, um, whenever a tornado would come, we would go to their house and, and go in the storm cellar and, and, and everything would be okay. Uh, but on this morning, they were surprised that we didn't show up. They were, they were you know, looking out the storm. They could see our house. Are they alive? Did the tornado get them? What happened? Uh, but Brooke and I, it was Saturday morning, right? And so we were asleep. We slept through the whole thing. I think, you know, when we finally woke up, we were like, what tornado? What happened? We didn't, we didn't know anything about a tornado. Um, because we didn't heed the warning, even though it was, even though the sirens were blasting, even though they were, uh, the, the radio, uh, weather radios were going off, there was, there was no worry from us. And, and thankfully God in his graciousness kept us safe on that particular day. And, and, and we're still here to talk about, to talk to you all. And, um, but, but today's warning is a little different. Today's warning is, is in regard to bread. And if you look there and, um, we're going to start in verses 
1 through 4. And really, if you look at 1 through 12 as a whole, I kind of split them into two different um, sections, if you will. The first section I called the unreachable moment. And this is going to be the time when Jesus and his uh, disciples have this encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And it's, 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 it's an unreachable moment because Jesus, they, they, he realizes they're blind and they don't have spiritual eyes to hear or spiritual ears to hear or eyes to see what he's trying to tell them. And so it's an unreachable moment. But then immediately following that is a teachable moment. When Jesus recognizes that his disciples have experienced this, and he says, you know what, based on what I have, I'm going to take what you saw there, and we're going to, we're going to learn a lesson. So that's kind of how we're going, to, we're going to flow through this. At the end of chapter 15, uh, we know that we, we said, I think last week, that, that the disciples and Jesus are in this city of Magadan. And Magadan's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And, and so as they're ready to leave, they have this encounter uh, with the with the Pharisees and Sadducees, that's that's verse one. Let's read that together. It says, "And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven." Now, this probably sounds familiar because just a few chapters earlier, in chapter twelve, we had almost the exact same story unfold, uh, where a group comes up to Jesus and they ask for a sign. It was it was almost the exact same thing. Um, only there's a few key difference, differences in that interaction and the one we have this morning. You see, um, uh, f- firstly, the, uh, they ask, the group that comes to ask the question is, fat, uh, is Pharisees and Sadducees. Previously, the group that came to ask the question or, or the request for the sign was the Pharisees and scribes. And so it's important to note that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the ones who ask the question. Because these aren't really allies. These groups aren't allies to each other. They're kind of at odds with each other. Uh, We know a lot about the Pharisees. We know that they were keepers of the law. They loved the law. Um, If you remember, Darren described it a few weeks ago. He had the table here, and he said, if if the table represents the law, then, then, then what they had added to the law, all those things around the table that were designed to help keep the law. So if it was... If it was a matter of remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, then, then the Pharisees would enforce laws that helped you keep the Sabbath day holy by telling you explicitly uh, whether or not you could do a, a particular activity or how far you could walk without that being considered work. And so it was, it was all these rules and regulations that added to the law. And I think when I think of the Pharisees, I think of Scripture adders. They're the people who add to Scripture. They're the people who put undue burden on top of what Scripture already says. They're, they're legalists. They're considered the right wing of the Jewish religion. And then on the other side of the coin, the left side of the coin, you have the Sadducees. And they're completely different from the Pharisees because they're, they're, they're sort of the left wing of the Jewish elite. They're, they're the upper class, the, the, the kind of the aristocrats. Uh, uh, they they ocupi- occupy places of authority like chief priests or um, high priest in the temple. They're, they're, they're usually tasked with keeping the temple. And, and as you know, all the corruption that goes along with the temple in these days, um, the Sadducees are, are behind that. And their theology is completely different because they don't believe in anything supernatural. They, they don't believe in angels. They don't believe in resurrection. Um, they they, they kind of uh, spiritualize scripture to the point where it's, where it's almost meaningless. In fact, they, they even threw away uh, everything beyond the fifth book of the Bible. So you only had the first five books of the Bible, and their view was the only thing that was considered the canon of Scripture. 
And so if the Pharisees were Scripture adders, the Sadducees were, were Scripture subtractors, right? So you have these two really odd groups, but they're, they're united in their hatred toward Jesus enough that they can come together and they can cooperate and they can work together. Um, and so the request they have when they come to Jesus, there in verse, uh, the first verse, it says that, that they would test him, that they ask him to show them a sign from heaven. Now this is, it's a, it's a, it's a very, evil request that they have because what we know is as we've worked through Matthew, we've seen Jesus do all sorts of signs. In fact, one of the most dramatic signs Jesus did was back in Matthew chapter 12 when he cleansed the demon-possessed man. And, and the evidence of the miraculous activity of that event was so overwhelming that the, the Pharisees couldn't deny it. Clearly, something supernatural had occurred, and if you remember, their reaction in that story was to attribute what that power was to Satan. They said, oh, he's done this by the power of Beelzebub. So, in effect, Satan is the one who provided the power. As Gene was mentioning earlier, that back in Matthew 12, they asked for a sign, but in, in this text this morning, they asked for something a little bit different. They asked for a sign from heaven. So they asked for a sign from heaven, something literally to be done in the clouds is what they want to see. And the, the belief, so some had the belief in that day that Satan would have the power to perform, perform some kind of miraculous activity on the earth, but they believed that only God could perform a miracle in the sky. That was the belief. So when they come and they say, perform a sign in heaven, they're looking for something more than what Jesus had done on the earth in order to disqualify him or discredit him when, when he inevitably refuses to do it. Um, when it, it, Over in Luke chapter 2, something very interesting happens. When Mary and Joseph, when, when Jesus is of the age, when it's time in the Jewish custom to take him to the temple and to, to dedicate him, um, they encounter a man named Simeon. Simeon's been given an interesting promise that he will live to see the promised Messiah who would come. And so he's got that promise. He's kind of waiting his whole life for this, for this moment. And Mary and Joseph show up with Jesus, and, and Simeon says, alas, the promise has been fulfilled. He, he knows instantly. And in Luke 2.34, Simeon says, it says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And you see that in the text, right? You have the falling of the Pharisees. You have the falling of the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. You have the rising up of his followers, of the disciples. And, and then he says in, in Luke 2, it says, and to be a sign that will be spoken against. This is fascinating because because the 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 the, the scribes are, are sorry, the, the Sadducees and Pharisees are asking for a sign from heaven. And, and what Luke says is that Jesus himself is the sign from heaven. So the, the sign from heaven that they actually asked for is standing two feet in front of them, yet they don't see it. And in, and in not seeing it, they fulfill the prophecy that's in Luke 2.34. Uh, moving on to, to, to verse 2 in Matthew, it says, He answered them. And so, so Jesus hears the request for the sign, and then he gives an answer. Right? He, he, his answer is, When it is evening, you will say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And when it's morning, 
when it's morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. So what you, what you may, Jesus obviously does not uh, concede to perform the miracle that they request. and Instead, he pokes at something I think is very important, and that's to their spiritual blindness. He says, he says, and if you think about what is it, we have similar sayings in our culture, right? You, you hear people say, red sky at night, sailor's delight, red sky in the morning, sailor's warning. Um, we, we have this same expression. And so what Jesus says is, is you use your physical vision. You use your physical eyes to look at the sky and make judgments about what the weather's going to be. You can tell the colors of the sky and, and know what the, what the weather's going to be, but you lack spiritual vision to be able to see the spiritual things that God's doing right in front of your eyes. So Jesus says, in effect, you're better, better weatherman than you are theologians. Hey, right? You should you should definitely quit your day job. And and I was thinking, you know, we all as, as everybody in here, if I talk to you, we all have specialties, right? We all have things that whether it's your work or your hobby or it's it's those things that you just kind of know more than everybody else about. And those are areas where we really feel comfortable. But the one thing, if there was anything that the Pharisees and the Sadducees as the, as the religious leaders of the day should have known, it was theology. It, was, it would have been what to expect when the Messiah came. Yet here they are, as blind as they can possibly be. And I think that's why Jesus says this. Uh, back in the last chapter in Matthew 15, 14, um, Jesus said, let them alone, they're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Here you, had, here you had those people who were charged with leading people to God, yet they were as blind as they could be by all things spiritual. So I think that's why Jesus does that. I think that's why he points to the sky and says, and says you, just, you just don't have the eyes to see. In fact, he, he goes on. To say in, in verse 4 here, he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Um, also, the same answer that he gave back in chapter 12, if you remember, he pointed the, 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 the Pharisees and the scribes, he just pointed them right to Jonah. And, and I think that's interesting. If you, if you look at that, at the very beginning there where it says evil and adulterous, when I, I think when I first heard this, I don't know how many years ago, but I thought, that seems kind of harsh. I don't know. Um, but maybe they were just cur- Maybe they just wanted a sign, right? Maybe they were just looking for some additional assurance. And, but Jesus, we know, is perfect. And every word that he says is perfect. And I think he puts his, his finger right on the root of the issue. I was, I was riding in my car this a couple of weeks ago, and 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 usually when I'm riding around in my car, I'll, I'll turn on a podcast and I'll listen to a podcast. And I was listening to some random podcast that was it was two kind of secular people, and they were debating whether or not uh, God exists and and how science could be used to, um, to to answer questions. And the host of the show contended that really God was this this whole religion w- was. Um, really, a source of of, of war and, and 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 violence, and and people are always arguing over it. And and he just didn't see any reason that that you know somebody should believe in God. And then and then the person on the other side of the table said, "Well, there's just a lot of stuff that science can't explain." And and, and the reality is, like you know, you ha- without an explanation like God, there's there's just no other way to to understand our existence. And 
and they concluded that argument with the host, and he says, you know, that's a good point, and I don't know if there really is a God, then, then it would be great if God could just do one big miracle. Like, why can't God just end the debate and just do something spectacular so that there's no more debate and we can all agree and we can all be on the same page? And when I heard that question, I thought, or when I heard that answer, I thought, wow, what an evil thought. When, when you think about what God has already done, to ask him to do more, right? When you think about God who so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to earth and, and he watched Jesus live that perfect life and he watched Jesus suffer and die and be nailed to a cross for us, for our sin, not for his sin, but for, for, for our sin, he did that. Then to say, God, could you do something else? Because just what you have already done is not enough. And I think if you, at least for me, when I thought about that, I was like, what a wicked, what a wicked request it is to ask God to do, to do more than he's already done. And so I love what Jesus does when he says, nothing will be given except the sign of Jonah. What, what a great answer. It's like, it's like the Reformation when, 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 they, when they had the phrase sola scriptura, right? When they, when they said scripture alone is sufficient. Jesus says, you have scripture. You don't, you don't need anything else other than scripture. And he points them back specifically to Jonah. Now, now one thing, when, when you study the Old Testament, um, if you've ever done a study of what they call Christ types in the Old Testament, if you, you can work your way through the Old Testament and you can study Christ types. And what a Christ type is in the Old Testament is a person who lived in the Old Testament times and their life is a reflection of who Jesus was going to be someday. And you can there, there, there's lots of them. It's a very interesting study if you've never done it. Just, just to go through the Old Testament and look at, look at the Christ types and look at the parallels between their lives and the lives of Christ. Well, one of those Christ types is Jonah. So Jonah's life was actually a picture of who Jesus was going to be someday. Now, Jonah has his issues, right? You read Jonah, you find all kinds of things. He's not perfect. None of the Christ types are perfect. There's only one perfect person, and that was Jesus. But what Jonah does is point to a better Jonah, Jesus, who would, who would come someday. And so when, when Jonah um, is, is sent to Nineveh in the same way that Jesus was sent to his people, Jonah would be three days in the belly of a fish in the same way that Jesus would be buried in the ground for three days. Jonah surfaces again on the shore, right? Jesus resurrected from the dead. He shows up again to complete the work. Jonah goes to Nineveh of all places. Jonah is sent to Nineveh, a wicked, wicked place. Let's look at, let's look at Jonah 1 uh, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. So God's aware of the evil that's in Nineveh. His wrath burns against the people of Nineveh. And so he provides for them a way to know him. He sends Jonah. Jonah, Jonah goes to Nineveh, this wicked city full of idolatry, full of just all sorts of evil, rampant, and he preaches God's message What's fascinating when the people of Nineveh hear the message that Jonah preaches, they're completely broken by their sin. They cover themselves in sackcloth and ashes. They, they, they fast because they're so broken for how they've lived their lives against God. They don't even, they not only fast, they don't even feed their animals. 
Right? They have their animals fast. Everybody is broken for sin. And there's this picture of what real repentance looks like, what real just being confronted with the truth of God, how it, how it breaks a person and how it, 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 it causes us to just at our core be shifted. And so you see that in, in, in the people of Nineveh. And so Jesus says, look at, look at to, the, to the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, look at Jonah. Look what happened to Jonah. All the people of Nineveh had was a shadow of who Christ was. They only had a Christ type. Yet what did they do? They responded dramatically. An entire nation repents. An entire nation broken for sin. You have not a shadow, but the source of light standing two feet in front of you, and you don't have eyes to see what he's doing. You see that? So when Jesus says, just remember Jonah, I think, th- I think that's what he has in mind. Um, so, so you, you, you kind of feel that, right? You feel that unreachable moment that Jesus is describing. There's just, there's just no hope for these people. Their hearts are so hard that they, they can't see, they can't hear. They have, they have no hope. It's an unreachable moment. And so when you get to first, verse 5, there's going to be a shift in the, in the setting of the story. Verse 5 says, When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And so they're, they're, they, were, they were at Magadan, west side of the Sea of Galilee. They get in the boat, and they go to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And, and probably a long day, right? They've had this stressful encounter with these religious leaders. They get in the boat. They row across, probably tiring. Um, they get there, and they realize that they really haven't got anything to eat. Um, they're probably hungry. They've probably been murmuring all along the way. Now, this is something I can identify with because you know, really, there's people who are preparers. The disciples don't seem like they're big preparers for things. Um, I can identify with that because I, too, am not a preparer. Uh, when we go on a road trip in our family, Brooke's the preparer. And, and, and without me even knowing it, she's got a basket. And in the basket go the peanut butter crackers and, and, and all the, the snacks and, and everything, the water and everything we're going to need for the trip. And it's in this basket. And, and we get down the road maybe like three miles. I'm like, uh-oh, we forgot to bring bread, you know. And she says, oh, here you go. I've got the snack bag. So, so, so clearly the, the disciples aren't preparers. And, and, and definitely something, and, and I imagine that, that they hear, the, Jesus hears the complaining as they kind of move across the lake. And he says, I'm going to use this moment as a teachable moment. Because Jesus is not thinking about bread. Jesus is thinking about something way more important. That was what just transpired over on that West Bank. Um, Jesus recognizes that there, there's, there's a, a teachable moment. In verse 6, he says, uh, Jesus says to them, and here it is, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and, Scra- and Sadducees. So the warnings beware, right? Jesus is, has got the, the horn on the top of the water tower, and he's, he's sounding the alarm, danger, beware, listen to me. And what do you need to be aware of is the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So, so leaven is like yeast. It's like how we use yeast, and it, it would be kneaded into the bread. Maybe there's a starter, right? You got a starter, and, and I know there's bread makers among us, and I'm not one of them, but they tell me 
that you have a starter and, and it's, it, it, you, you knead it into that bread and you bake it and it rises like magic and, and you have a, a formed loaf of bread. So it's the same thing that they would have done in those days. So Jesus uses that picture, that figurative language to describe what happened with the Pharisees and Sadducees. <clears throat> and the disciples aren't, aren't the most um, perceptive when it comes to figurative language. Like you may remember when, when we were studying the parables, how a lot of times they don't get it right up front. And I th- that gives me comfort as somebody who does, also doesn't always get it right the first time, right? Sometimes I need some help getting there. And the disciples were the same way, but they had the humility and they had the desire to learn, so they were willing to ask the question, Jesus, what do you mean by that parable? What was that? We missed it. Contrast that with the Pharisees who would just walk away and, and think it was a ridiculous thing to say. You see, the difference there is, is one takes humility to want to learn. And so same thing when Jesus uses this figurative speech, the disciples don't get it. Verse 7 and 8, And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? <clears throat> so you have Jesus, the, the Pharisee, I'm sorry, the, the disciples they, they're, they're, they're vocal about the bread. Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And they're like, yeah, but we're hungry, right? We really need bread. And I think it's, it's, it's easy to kind of dismiss them at this point. I think uh, these guys are a little thick-headed if they still don't get what Jesus is talking about. But I don't think that's it. Um, G- Jesus, in, in this verse, he puts his finger directly on what is the true issue. It's not that the disciples are thick-headed. It's not that they're good at understanding or that they're too hungry to understand what he's trying to tell them. The problem is they don't have enough faith. The real issue is they don't have enough faith. And so what does Jesus do? Is he The, the thing that keeps them from understanding that he's not talking about physical bread is faith. He, he does something very interesting. He causes them to remember some things. And I think we can learn from that. Because we're going to struggle with faith too. We do struggle with faith. I struggle with faith from time to time. And it helps in those moments when we struggle with our faith to be able to remember. So what does Jesus remind him of? He says, don't you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets we gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Jesus reminds them that bread's not an issue here. Food's not an issue. Our physical world is not an issue because I have already shown you that I've got all authority and all power to be able to to fix anything we need. Not only do I just meet the need, but he reminds them, I meet it with an abundance, right? We had baskets and baskets of leftover. Jesus makes a a powerful connection between their current situation and what has already transpired. And I think in the same way, we can fall into that same trap because how many times do we face difficulties in our own circumstances, right? It's easy for us to kind of shrug our shoulders at the disciples and say, I don't, I don't know why they don't get it. But how many times are we in that same position when difficulty arises, when something doesn't go as planned, when I forgot the thing I need, when, when, when sickness hits, when financial problems hit, whatever, whatever the issue is, when those things happen, how easy is, it, uh, easy is it for us to forget what God has already done? 
And so it helps in those moments to, to remember, to remember the one that sits in the boat, not only with the disciples, but the same one that sits in the boat with the disciples, sits in the boat with us. He not only has the ability to help, but he's willing to help out of his own abundance. So verse 11 says, How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So Jesus is, he's, Jesus is, is, a, is the disciple maker here, right? He is, he's patient. He, he doesn't laugh at his student. He's not frustrated with his student. He just patiently teaches. He takes, as they're walking through life, as situations like this come up, he's helping them process how to deal with these things in light of Scripture. And so, so he reiterates this point. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, when we talked about what leaven is, but I want to I talk a little bit deeper about leaven. Leaven, when it's used in Scripture, is typically used as, as an influence, right? It's, it's something that, that influences who we are. It in, influences our theology. And I think Jesus could have used um, any word he wanted to to describe this, but I think he chose leaven spe- for a specific reason. Um, he could have said, beware of the poison of the Pharisees and Sadducees, but he doesn't say poison. He says leaven. We all know what poison looks like, right? If I've got a bottle of poison, it's a brown bottle, and there's a label clearly on the on the on the poison. And what 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 does the label say? Poison, exactly. And there's a picture above the word poison. What's on, what's what's the picture? Skull and crossbones. Probably the skull has little X's over its eyes, right? So so we all know what poison looks like, and we would never put poison into bread. But what would we put into bread? Leaven. We would we would put le- we would put yeast leaven into bread because we want our bread to be fluffy. And so Jesus knows. The reason reason he says leaven is because he says, this is something you have to put in your bread. You're going to be putting some kind of influence into your life. Just make sure that the influence that you put into your life is not what's coming from the Pharisees and Sadducees. You need to get your influence from somewhere good. You see, leaven can kind of, if it's bad leaven, it can kind of, it can kind of sneak up on us. It causes us to, to ruin the loaf of bread, and, and we don't even know it because it's not clearly labeled. It's kind of sneaky. It sneaks into our lives. And I think that's why Jesus uses this analogy. <clears throat> if, you, if you go down to, to, to verse 12, it says, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You see, the, the, the thing about, I remember we used to have this uh, bread that, that would, people would make in our community. It's called friendship bread. And, and friendship bread was like you had a starter, and, and you made that bread from that starter, and you would take some of that starter and you would give it to a friend, right? And the friend would take that starter, and they would add the ingredients that were needed, and they'd need it, and they'd make bread. And, and it was kind of like those loaves were, were related, in a way. So you can, you can see from that picture that bad bread, bad leaven doesn't just affect you. It has a, it has a multiplication effect, right? Because you're going to reuse that starter over and over and over again. So, so, so Jesus 
that's why he sounds the warning. It's not, it's not really just us at stake, but it's, it's the people that we encounter. It's the people that we disciple. It's the people that we teach are all susceptible to being influenced by our bad bread. I, I love that in, in, in verse 12, Jesus says, and then they understood, right? Because Jesus has been patient. He, he's, he's taught diligently. He's, he's, he's baby-stepped him through the process, and he's got him to the point where now we can hear that they understand. And that's great. <clears throat> it, was a, it, was a, it was a teachable moment that Jesus, Jesus recognized. Um, what, what's the leaven? Specifically, what is the leaven that Jesus is warning them of? It tells us, we get the answer in verse 12, what, is, what, what the leaven is. It says there, it's the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's not necessarily the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's, the, it's their doctrine. And that's a word that, that's kind of scary for some of us. They're like, ah, I don't want to get into doctrine, right? Sometimes we just want to, we want to stay on the surface. We don't want to, we don't want to mince words and we don't want to get, we don't want to get too down in the weeds lest we should become tangled up. But I don't think that's, I don't think that's a good way to think about it. But I think it's, it's those, it's those errors in doctrine that can cause us to get a little contamination in the leaven. Right? When we clearly know what we believe, when, when somebody comes to us, whether it's somebody you disciple, whether it's your kids, your teenagers, your, your younger kids, whoever they are, when they come to you and, they, and they're going to have difficult questions because they're going to encounter difficult things in their lives, very difficult things. And they're going to come to you and they're going to say something like, why is this bad thing happening to me? Does God not care? And that's, that's doctrine, right? That's where we have to know. We have to be able to, to work out those, those, those difficult questions in life. And so it's important. When, 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 when we use that leaven and we pass that leaven on to other people, we have to make sure that it's, it's good leaven and not leaven that poisons and contaminates. So in closing here, I just... I, I kind of wanted to just give you four quick, tangible things that we can, we can walk away with. How to avoid making bad bread. How do we avoid it? Jesus has warned us. He sound, sounds the trumpet, right? The weather radio goes off. How do we avoid making bad bread? And I got four of them here. Firstly, in difficult circumstances, remember that we have a loving Savior who has both the ability and the desire to care for our needs. Right? We, have, we have a loving Father who understands our situation. In the psalm we, we just read, right? God is good. He knows us. If there's one thing He knows, He knows us. And He knows what we need. And He has the ability, right? Jesus told Him, He says, remember what I did? Remember the ability that I have to do things that you don't understand? God has those abilities. And He also is good. And he also desires to help us in those difficult situations. And second thing, how to avoid making bad bread. When your faith is weak, remember, right? All capital letters, remember what God has done for others. This was in verses 9 through 10. Jesus reminds them what he's already done for other people. Jesus is one who loves. Jesus is one who, who, who when, when he saw the crowds, it, it, uh, Matthew said that he had compassion on them. 
He cared for them. And, and this was the crowd. Now he's got his disciples. He wants them to remember that he is one who can help. So remember what God has done for other peoples. Thirdly, oh, also in that, Hebrews 11. When we remember, Hebrews 11 is a famous chapter in Scripture. It's the hall of fame of faith, right? When you go to Hebrews 11, and, and, and you can just work through name by name where God's done great thing after great thing through all these uh, heroes of the faith throughout time. And, and, and why is it good for us to go through that? Why is it good? Because it helps us remember the God we serve. It helps us remember what He's done for other people, remembering God and what He's done for, for others. But thirdly, also, when your faith is weak, remember what God has done for you. I love in Hebrews 12, right after you read that, there's a pivot. And He says, in light of all of those people, remember who you serve. Remember what God has done for you. As you run the race, focus on the finish, focus on Jesus Christ, because that's what has been done for you. When we look at the cross, when we, when we think about what Jesus has done to forgive us, remember that God cares enough to do those things for us too. And then fourthly, and lastly, as I close here, guard yourself against bad doctrine for your sake and for the sake of others. <clears throat> the leaven, we saw it, it was bad teaching. It was bad doctrine. We had to guard our hearts against bad doctrine. We had to make sure that we're in the Word. We had to make sure that those who influence us, who teach us, who, who preach to us, that everything they say, everything they do is in light, is in the light of Scripture, right? And that, and, and that we, we fully understand so that we're equipped to be able to take that message and to be able to pass it on with confidence. Don't be scared of doctrine because bad bread multiplies, right? We talked about that. Bad bread multiplies, but so does good bread. And what we want to have as believers, what we want to have among ourselves is, is taking in that nourishment of the Word so that we may become mature so that we can take that message and give it to other people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much. Thank you for this church. God, just thank you for uh, an opportunity. God, I just pray that, uh, thank you so much for your word and, and, and how you've used this passage of text just to minister to me uh, this week. God, I just pray that um, you would help us all to remember these things, God. And, and, and all of us would remember our sphere of influence and those who are, are, are maybe we don't even know that, that we're discipling them, but they're, we, they're just watching. And they're watching to see how we handle things. And they're watching to see what we're going to do next, God, that we would live lives that would just be powered by your spirit and, and, and we would, uh, God, just honor you and all those things so that um, we're able to, to point others uh, to your goodness. And we're able to, to give the bread just out of, out of bounty. We're able to, to give that good bread to others. And that's all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.